Let's bow for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to open your word, to hear from you. God, I pray that uh, as I share from your word, as I communicate uh, things that uh, I've discovered there, Lord, I pray that it would be you that is heard more than me. I pray that uh, uh, what I say is honoring and pleasing to you. I pray that uh, what we receive and what we do and where we go with what we hear, Lord, would be honoring and pleasing to you. May you be glorified in everything that takes place this time in this place. In Christ's name I pray, amen. One of my favorite things to do is, is to take pictures, generally of nature. Um, I, I wouldn't consider myself a photographer by any stretch of the imagination, not even an amateur. Uh, I'm just somebody who likes to snap pictures and then look at them and say, ooh, how pretty. Um, <laughs> and uh, a few years ago, my wife and I ha- uh, and my family had a chance to go to England for uh, my sabbatical. Uh, spent a year there. It was just a wonderful experience all the way around. And, and one of my favorite times there was our journey up to Scotland to drive around to see you know, the, the territory, to see the lochs and the glens and all of those wonderful things that are there. And um, we went for a hike once while we were there. Me and the three kids, the wife stayed back. Uh, didn't go with us, and um, while we were walking, we came out through the forest, and there was this beautiful stream, not really a river, not big enough to be a river, but it was a, it was a good-sized stream flowing down the mountain, and I looked at that, and I said, man, I have to get a picture of that. I have to. It's just beautiful, and so I took a picture, and I looked at it, you know, the digital camera looked at it, and uh, that's not really what I want. I want the whole thing, and so I decided I had to get out in the middle of the stream to take the picture, and I looked where I needed to step. There was a, there was a stone right there, just, just an easy step out there to be able to get more of the, the, uh, the stream coming down the mountain and all of that. And I looked at it, and it had some moss on it, and the water's flowing over it just a little bit, and I thought to myself, if, Tim, if you step on that stone, you are going to slip, and you're going to fall. But I wanted that picture really bad. So I stepped out there, and sure enough, the second my foot hit that stone, it went that way, and my body went that way, and I smashed my head on a rock. My glasses broke. I was bleeding from my forehead there. Didn't get the picture. (laughs) But I knew I shouldn't step out there. Everything inside me told me, if you step out there, you will slip and fall. All the signs are there. All the evidence is there. And yet, I did it anyway because I wanted something more than all the warning signs were directing me. Today, as we continue our journey through 1 John, we've been looking at his instructions on how to walk. It's a, it's a key word in the epistle, walk this way. This is what you need to do. This is how you need to walk. Well, today he comes and he outlines some, some traps, some obstacles that believers can easily trip over. Things that he lays out before us and says, keep an eye out for these things. Realize these things are real. Realize these things are present and avoid them. And as we look at them this morning, I want to encourage you to be wiser than I was on that Scotland hillside. 
that as you hear the signs, as you hear the warning signals going off in your head, maybe about something you're going through right now, maybe about something you'll encounter in the days ahead, that you take advice from what the Holy Spirit's teaching, what God's Word is teaching you, and avoid those obstacles. Don't step out there just because you want something more than it deserves to be wanted. So we're looking in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. John writes, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, they love the, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What have you heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I've written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you, as you as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you. Remain in him. And so John here is warning his church. He's telling them about things that they're going to encounter that could be problematic for their faith, things that could be actually opposite of their faith. And he's trying to instruct them and encourage them to, to watch out for these things. And, and he makes it clear in the passage here that everyone, first of all, is needed in the work of Christ. If we, if we as a church are gathered here, there is nobody who should be on the sidelines, as it were. There's nobody who is second string when it comes to the faith, when it comes to enacting who God has called us to be as his church. And he also encourages us and helps us to understand that everyone also needs to be warned. There's nobody who's beyond this threat. There's nobody who's safe from the, uh, the, the struggles, from the obstacles that he's outlined here. 
when he uses the term little children there in verse 12 and in verse 14, he doesn't have in mind literally little children. What he has in mind there are those who are his children in the faith, those whom he is instructing, those whom he is encouraging. That is an all-encompassing term in this particular context. He, he wants us all to understand. He wants us all to be reminded, first of all, that our sins have been forgiven. If you are a believer, if you are walking with Christ, your sins have been forgiven. And that's so hard for us sometimes to, to, to conceive of. It's so hard for us sometimes to, to walk in and, and to understand because we make mistakes, and when we make those mistakes, it's easy to get enveloped in the shame or, or the guilt or whatever that, that grows out of those mistakes, out of those sins. But John wants us to know and he wants us to understand that, that one of the, the ways we can prosper in terms of our faith, in terms of walking with the Lord, is to first of all remember, recognize, we have indeed been forgiven. Therefore, I can enter with boldness to the throne room of grace. Therefore, I can pray with boldness in terms of what I believe and, and what I'm looking for and, and what I'm seeking. Therefore, I can walk with confidence. None of that grows out of walking around in shame or guilt. I stand before the Lord flawless. Not because I myself am flawless, but because Christ's blood has been applied to me. And in that cleansing, in that purifying, in that work, I have been forgiven. The second thing he reminds us of is that we all have an intimate relationship with the Father. We're close to Him. We know Him. We, we understand something of who He is. Why? Because we know the Son. To know the Son, John says here, is to know the Father. To know His heart. To see who He is. Too often in Christianity, we've, we've separated the Father and Son to the degree that we've almost seen them as opposites, that the Father is the wrathful one, ready to, to blast us and, and smite us and strike us down, and, and the Son is the one who comes in and says, no, no, don't do that, Father, don't do that, Father. But that's not at all how Scripture portrays the Father, both the Father and the Son are true judges, but they're also both very full of love, full of compassion, in that while we were yet sinners, the Father sent the Son to die. That's a deep expression of His love for us. Third, He wants us all to be reminded that we don't have to walk in sin because we've been given a new consciousness, a new, a new way of looking at things, by the Father. He's overcome the evil one. And in overcoming the evil one, he's given us power to live. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and, and put them to, to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so we can walk with confidence. We can walk with assurance. And ultimately, all of that comes together to tell us that the term, the title, child of God, means something. In our world, in our environment, uh, uh, this, this, this idea has somehow been spread and expressed that we're all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. And in the broadest sense, since he is the creator, yes, we're all the child of God on some level. But what 
the scriptures refer to as being a child of God is something much different, something much more significant, something much more important than that. We have a connection with God. He has forgiven us, and he has empowered us to walk in a new way. Now, under that that broad umbrella of children, he breaks the the church down into two groups here, fathers and, and young men. The terms have a much broader idea than, than just the males in the, in the church. This refers to both men and women. He's not trying to distinguish that. He, he includes all those who are uh, mature and all of those who are young in his terminology here. The fathers are those who are mature in their faith. They've known the Father who is from the beginning, faith that is anchored securely in the things of the past. As a church, it's important that we recognize and acknowledge the journey that many have been on in their faith. It's important for us to see how God has brought people through some very significant trials, some very significant hardships, and he's brought them victory. Those who have been in the faith for a while they uh, are the anchors of faith. They communicate. They ought to be communicating the truth of who God is and, and, and holding us to, with confidence, the, the faith that's been given to us. And they're put alongside here the young. The term here in terms of the young is talking about somebody who's, who has strength, who has zeal, who has passion. They've overcome the evil one, as John says here, but they're not quite at that point where they're fully grounded. They're the ones who are on fire. They're the ones who are the exemplars of the faith. They're the ones who are out there lighting things up, so to speak. And we need both of those in the church because if you just have the so-called anchors, you're lacking the energy. You're lacking the fire. You're, lack, you're lacking the push. And if you just have the, the, the young, if you just have those who are, who are out there trying to set things on fire and, and trying to do things, then you're lacking the truth. You're la- lacking the conviction. You're lacking the foundation. God has designed us to worship together, young and old. Too often in our culture, it's become the separating factor because we see things differently. And we let that difference that we see be something that drives us apart instead of something that we utilize to push us further ahead in who God has called us to be. And so he's offering this assurance, and he's calling us each to to be who God made us and to stand with conviction. But he also wants us to understand that this assurance and this encouragement does not reduce our vulnerability. All of us are in danger of falling prey or, or, or of stumbling over certain realities. And the first of these realities that he says we might stumble over is the love of this world. In verses 15 through 17, he highlights this truth that the world, the things in the world, they're not compatible with the love for God. And by world, simply what he means is it's 
that which stands in opposition to God's desires, that which stands in a different place than God even, not necessarily a forceful opposition. Sometimes, as uh, we've talked about before, sometimes something can be in, in opposition to God simply from the perspective of it's not exactly what he wants. And the good can become a, uh, as much a barrier as the bad in relationship to getting to the best. And so he calls on us to, to not love these sorts of things. And now, he's not talking about the sacrificial love on behalf of the world. He's not talking about don't love the world in the sense of, of sacrifice yourself for it, communicate with it, share the love of Christ with it. He's not talking about that kind of love when he says you love the world. He's talking about the love of the world that is driven by uh, an infatuation with godlessness. He uses the, the three terms here for this love, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and the pride of life. Desires of the flesh would be the, the cravings that we have, those things that, that push us from within. The desires of the eye would be the passions, those things that are out there that drive us from without. The pride of life would be the seeking of worldly status. And each one of those are direct uh, reference, direct commentary on the fall. You go back to the fall, they're in the garden. And what do you have? You have the wrong interest. Looking at things that shouldn't have been looked at. The wrong passions. Desiring the things that should not have been desired. And then what? The pride that led to the fall. He says, these do not spring from the Father. They yield no benefit in relationship to Him. And he says, this world is passing away. Why would you absorb yourself in it? Why would you get ensnarled and entangled and driven by something that is temporary when what is permanent, what is eternal, is calling to you, is beckoning to you? threats of this world are real in the church. There's a real struggle, especially with the Internet. Internet can be an amazing tool. It can be a, an amazing resource for study, for research. We have access to things that we could have only dreamed of having access to before. Ideas and concepts, ancient texts, all sorts of things are available through the Internet. It can be a wonderful tool, but it's also a breeding ground for a lot of false belief, a lot of false teachings. And we need to be careful. It seems that every couple of years there's some new book, new teaching that comes out that is some blend of Christianity and modern psychology or, or uh, new age thinking or something like that. A couple years ago, it was, it was the circle, the, the, the prayer circle. And I, I know believer after believer who, man, this is what we got to do. This is how we got to get in touch with God. This is how we have to connect. Completely ignoring the fact that it comes from a rabbi who was steeped not in the Old Testament or in belief in God, but in mysticism. New Age beliefs merging with it. A few years before that, it was a, the prayer of Jabez. Taking one little text, 
completely out of context and running with it as if it's some proclamation or promise of, of a great future and, and great uh, material blessing right here. Now understand, understand, God wants to give you a great life right now. I'm not trying to deny that. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to push some sort of asceticism where we, we go out and we have to deny ourselves and beat ourselves every night and, you know, deny uh, the flesh in terms of all sorts of things and, you know, even go so far as the Stylites. I don't know if you all know who the Stylites were. They were a group in the, the early Middle Ages who built these big t- pillars and climbed them and sat on top of them in order to avoid the temptations of the world. Okay? I'm not in any way advocating that sort of thing. All right? But what I am saying is that so often our Christian beliefs have been driven by a materialism, an Americanism. We've been driven by this desire for material blessing to the exclusion sometimes of what we ought to be desiring and seeking, and that is to know God more. God's become this magic lamp that we can rub, and if we say things just the right way, in just the right order, in just the right place, then he has to answer. That's not the God of Scripture. God is not constrained by our desires. God is not controlled by what we want. God is God. We should be moving toward him, not trying to move him toward us. So we need to be careful. We need, we need to be vigilant in terms of this, these passions that sometimes drive us. The second element that John brings out here are antichrists. And as he mentions them, there's this upgraded urgency that he says. He says it is the last hour. Now, immediately when we hear Antichrist, we think of the beast, and we think of 666, and we think of all these other things that have been thrown into the mix. But that's not really what the biblical perspective of Antichrist is. Antichrist is what? People who are leading others out from the church. People who are misrepresenting Jesus. What about this idea of last hour? John wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. And he says quite clearly, we are in the last hours. The Antichrist are already here, he says. And I can point them out to you, he says. What's he have in mind here? How is it that we're 2,000 years later, they were in the last hours, and, and here we are two millennia later? The picture from a biblical perspective, the the best way I can think of describe it is that that of a, a train depot. That the cross is a train de- depot, and from that train depot leaves two tracks that the train rides along, and that train is us. Okay, one track is history and experience and all the things that we've encountered over the last two thousand years. The other track is what it's God's kingdom at work and very present right alongside the history of humanity. That we are constantly, and we have been since the cross, living in those last days. Even as history proceeds, even as as history works, there is this 
work of God that is expressive that we are already in the last days. We have been for 2,000 years. God has moved finally. He's moved ultimately at the cross. And that cross has secured certain truths, certain realities that are ours already. And we walk in that. We live in that. But we need to what? As we walk in that and live in that. How do we avoid the Antichrist? How do we know if we are an Antichrist? He says they have failed to love and remain in the community. They stand opposed to correct teaching. They've Establish themselves, they set themselves up as the authority, ignoring Scripture, ignoring the community of faith. And he says, we as believers have what? We have the protection, verse 20, that comes with the anointing from the Holy One, from the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting here that John elevates his fellow believers rather than claiming personal apostolic authority on the issue. It would be very easy for John to step in and say, I'm an apostle of Jesus. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. And I'm telling you what they're saying is false. So listen to me and get away from them. But that's not what he does. Instead, what John does, he says, y'all have the anointing from the Holy One. Y'all have the Spirit at work in you. He's trying to get across the truth, the idea that all of us must understand that we have a value and a capacity for fending off false teachings. Why? Because John's not always going to be there. All my kids are right at that age where they're transitioning from our house to outside the house. And we have one who's been out, one in college, one in high school who's approaching that. And as a parent, I'm just going to be honest, that terrifies me. Terrifies me. Because I tend to be a little bit protective of my kids. But I hope that as they make that transition, that I prepared them for it. I hope that I've instilled them with the truth and with the understanding so that when those difficulties come and mom and dad aren't there, they know how to handle them. They know how to deal with them. And the same thing is true in terms of my relationship with y'all and as my church. I can't be there all the time to say, yeah, that's a false teaching. That's a good one. I'm happy to help when I can. The reality of the situation is, as John says here, you have the Holy Spirit to do that for you, to instruct you, to grant you discernment, to to push you forward in the faith. John says that that these individuals have come to question the, the very incarnation of Jesus. They've made Jesus something less, although they've argued that they've made him something more. They've denied the humanity of Christ. And as evangelicals, as as Baptists, as believers, that's really where we struggle. We have no struggle with the deity of Jesus. 
the great one, the powerful one, the creator. We have no trouble with that. It's with his humanity that we sometimes struggle. But I want to encourage you to understand today that Jesus' humanity is as important as his deity. Because without that humanity, without the historical fact of his presence with us, without his connection with us on that level, his death for us means nothing. The writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to demonstrate that it's his humanity that allows us to, for him to work as our mediator that brings salvation. We need both of those. The third thing, then, that John points to are false teachings. He says that as they express these lies about Jesus, as they express these lies about us and who we are and how we relate, he gives us two routes to battle these, two paths that we can take to to deal with false teachings when we encounter them. First are the objective truths. Scripture, the historical facts that are unchanging. Jesus Christ lived. He died. He rose again. He has changed life ever since. Those are objective facts that we need to know, we need to understand, we need to be ready to respond to with. But there's also a subjective route that John proposes here, and that is that we need to hone our skills with spiritual discernment. That is, we need to be in the Word. We need to be in prayer. We need to lean on the Holy Spirit. And how each of us does that is going to be different. Some of us are going to learn and, and follow and pursue the whole issue of apologetics. That is, being able to answer these questions intellectually. Because that's how we're driven, intellectually. Some of us are going to lean more on the emotional side of of what God has done for us and what we've seen God do in other lives around us. But in either case, we're going to pursue how God has made us and how God has constructed us in order to be able to respond to false teachings when they're made. And a big part of that preparation is learning and listening to sound teaching. Now John says here, In verse 27, you don't need anyone to teach you. He does not mean by that. He's not saying that you don't need training. I don't need training. He's not saying you don't need sound teaching or or anything like that. He's not saying you can just go off and, and just function fine without any sort of instruction. If that were the case, this letter itself would make no sense. Because he's offering instruction and guidance. If they don't need it, why even write the letter? Or why write a letter any longer than just that sentence? You don't need any training. Sign John. (laughs) He's not saying that all interpretations are equal. That everybody who sits down and reads a, a passage of Scripture, that all of their opinions are equal. They're not. There are sound biblical approaches to interpreting Scripture. And if those approaches are not being used, then the value of the conclusions drawn are not as strong. What is he saying? 
he's saying that these teachers, they're arguing that they have the special anointing, and because they have the special anointing, because they have the special standing, then their word is the only one that matters. As I stand before you as your pastor, as your preacher, however you prefer to refer to me, my authority only extends so far as I accurately interpret the Word of God. I don't have a special anointing that you don't possess. You all have the spirit, same spirit I have. And so my authority to say what I say is only secure insofar as I stay close to this. When I step out on my own and I start going in a direction that this text doesn't proclaim, or if I say, God gave me a special message last night I need to just give to you, forget what your, the Bible says, I'm just going to share it with you. If you ever hear a preacher say anything like that, run out the back door as fast as you can. So John is encouraging us all to dig into the Word, to understand the Word. And so he's put these warning signs before us. But warning signs are only as good as our ability or our willingness to follow them. If you see a sign on a street down in downtown Marshall that says one way, and you're going against it, that sign has done you no good as you're plowed into another vehicle who's going the right way. You see a sign that says, you know, dangerous curve ahead, slow down. It does you no good if you don't actually slow down. And so the warnings that John has given us here, the warnings of false teachings, of the Antichrist, of love of the world, they do us no good if we don't actually listen to them and respond. If we don't actually watch out for them and pursue them. And so as we come to the time of response this morning, I ask you, are you willing to listen to what John has guided us in today? Are you willing to, to grow in that discernment? Are you willing to Practice the spiritual disciplines that help you to understand God's word better, help you to understand God better so that when those false teachings come, when those temptations pull at you, that you can avoid them and instead draw closer to the one who made you, the one who saved you, the one who loves you. That's our invitation this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. I thank you that you haven't left us to our own devices, to our own thoughts and ideas and concepts about who you are, but that you have revealed yourself, that you have come, that the Son has become incarnate, lived among us, so that we might understand you better, so that you could save us the way you did. God, I pray that you would help us to be attentive to the warning signs you placed all around us. I, I ask, Lord, that you help us to, to seek out the source of information that we're sometimes following. And help us always to listen to your Spirit as you guide. 
God, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not have that relationship with you that I spoke of, doesn't have that intimate connection, cannot really be considered your child because they've never given their life to you. Lord, I pray that this morning, right now, they'd make that commitment. They'd follow through by surrendering to your desires for their life. Lord, however it is you want to move here this morning, we ask that you do so. And we look forward to seeing what you're going to do with our lives as we surrender to you. It's in Christ's name I pray these things.